0: Welcome to Counter Stories, a program by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Leigh Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of Programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer.
1: And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians, and associate at Dendros Group.
2: I'm Rosa Maria Frias, I'm happily taking a break from life, <laughs> an early break. And enjoying life to its fullest, uh, doing some executive coaching and some uh, teachings here and there. But other than that, I, life is great.
3: And I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and partner at the Dendros Group. Lou, you shook me with that one. Taking a break from life. You got a lot more life to live. Yeah, I, I know.
1: I, 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 I'm, I'm never quite sure what taking a break from life means.
2: Life's the man. Life's the man. How's that?
1: I'm taking a break from life.
3: <laughs>
0: I wish. I wish. We've gathered here for another uh, show. And I'm happy we're all four together again. It's, It's been a minute with all, all four of us together. So happy to see everybody um, it is our second show in uh, Black History Month, so why not talk about Black history? <laughs> so um, what, what we have here at Ampers um, is a program called MN90, Minnesota's History in 90 Seconds, um, which our, list, our listeners over the air may recognize. Um, and I wanted to share one um, with everyone and um, see what you all
4: think about it.
3: Welcome to MN90, Minnesota history in 90 seconds.
4: August 1856, Charles Flandreau, a young lawyer, paddled upriver. His destination was the Mississippi Headwaters. But he'd also heard stories of a legendary fur trapper with superhuman powers who apparently lived in the deep woods thereabouts. So after making the Headwaters, the lawyer trekked east to a house on Leech Lake. And there stood George Bonga, towering over six feet and powerfully built even in his 50s. The son of an African American father and Ojibwe mother, Bonga spoke six languages at least. Yet, more important to Flandreau, Bonga was a generous host to unannounced visitors. He welcomed the lawyer into the home he shared with his Ojibwe wife, feeding and entertaining his guest with stories of the old fur trapping days for two weeks. The men would never cross paths again. But in 1898, Charles Flandreau gave a talk at the Minnesota Historical Society about George Bonga, who died 18 years before, recreating those magical summer days at the Fur Trapper's house on Leech Lake.
3: MN90 is produced by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.
0: I had no idea who George Bonga was. Uh, I was introduced to him by um, Dan Bergen, um, who was making a documentary for TPT um, about black history. Um, and obviously you can't fin- do it all in one piece, but he kind of went into the, the deeper, the earlier stuff. Um, and that's where I learned, I learned about this, this person. And I was like, how come I don't know about this person? already
3: like he seems like there's there's a whole bridge (laughs) to him in in Duluth (laughs) there's a whole bridge name for him right
2: (laughs) see I didn't know that yeah I've heard bits and pieces but not in a formal way right not because of school and not because of history books but it's more things that come up along the way in our paths right uh but not enough quite honestly and and in my mind, uh, there are thousands, if not you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of unsung heroes, so to speak, in history here in this state, uh, across the country, and for that matter, across the world, whose lives were very impactful back in the day and continue to be formative for folks. But we have limited knowledge about them. But I think with social media, we can fix that including our our program.
3: Yeah, you know, it you know, we always talk about these adult, some almost the same five people every single Black History Month, mm-hmm. so I'm so excited that we're going to be surfacing the names of folks and the experiences of folks uh, who we may not know about. Let me use this it's a relative big 5 because the big 5 have a general sense but some people move in, you know, move in either side of that. But the big 5 that are always hit on Black History Month and focused on in so many ways are dr king malcolm x and then people's five tens of chains those two are always in there and then sometimes you get frederick Douglass, harriet tubman and then some sampling of you know that fifth one can can be sojourner truth it could be phyllis wheatley <laughs> and we all learn about rosa and rosa right the, there's there's that rotating seat in the in that one right but these these are the big names bubbling over to the surface um and oftentimes they 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 get regurgitated over and over again george bonga his his story as a fur trader translator you know canute himself between duluth and the the superior area and all the way to to fort snelling many a time over Um, i remember there being an article that came out about him i think maybe last year sometime last year um, and they were comparing him. They were like, if you think ba- Paul Bunyan's cool, how about we talk about this real, <laughs> actual that. person? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the comment mm-hmm. sections, people lost their freaking minds. You know, like, like, how will you compare him to Paul Bunyan? And, and he didn't even do that. And, and folks are like, yo, this is a real person we're talking about. Like, <laughs> hello,
4: <laughs> black man
3: born in what would become <laughs> Minnesota, and spoke six languages, and all the—I mean, all the stuff you heard in that clip.
0: You know, at that a black native man who who they used as a translator uh, a lot, right? Because he spoke so.
1: So, because we had heard stories of George Bunga, I'd heard st- like like lose. I had heard bits and pieces about George Bunga in the American Indian community, because that last name is still around. And mm-hmm. um, so, I had heard stories, but I have to admit. Um, I learned a lot more when a friend of mine, a guy I went to uh McAllister College with name uh James Williams, J Dub is what we call him, played a George Bunga in a play at uh the historical at the historical theater. And of course, uh, myself and colleagues from Metro, uh we bundled up and uh went and attended that play. And it was uh J dub did a fantastic job with that, and um, but yeah, I mean, George Bunga was kind of larger than life, you know, one of these individuals who not only did he speak many different languages, but he was instrumental in, in also um, negotiating between early uh, settlers that were then moving into what would be the Minnes- eventually be called the Minnesota Territory. Uh-huh. And with uh, the tribes, with some of the Ojibwe tribes, and he kind of acted as an interpreter um, and a negotiator, you know, for the for for tribal folks. I mean, so he he played an instrumental role. Um, Fur trading voyager. I mean, you know, the whole we hear about the French voyagers, but we never hear about one that was a uh, local that was a native of uh, this area.
0: Right. When you think of Voyager, you think of what's in the the textbooks that you grew up with. Right. White guy with a raccoon on his head. You're not envisioning somebody <laughs> like George Bunga.
3: You're not envision a black man in northern Minnesota. Right. <laughs> but it's not without controversy, too. Right. So that negotiation also puts you into spaces where both communities had
1: issues and challenges. Exactly. I mean, you know, um, you know, trying trying to negotiate that that middle can be tough because you know we hear you know while we hear we we often don't hear the true backgrounds that were or the true motives of why people were engaged in the, in those discussions. And so we just kind of hear about the end result, right? But there were many difficult issues that um, that he was instrumental in being able to negotiate because, you know, that a lot of these talks resulted in somebody giving up something. And usually the folks who were giving up something were the Ojibwe people. And and those discussions (laughs) are not easy.
3: Yeah. And. And I mean, one one example is um, there. There's a, a story of a an Ojibwe man who was accused of of murder, and George Bolger was actually responsible for tracking him down and and bringing him back. And that, you know, so there's there's some, you know, one of the challenges with with black folks, you know, especially freed black folks in the United States trying to navigate life had to contend with the various factions and communities and what folks thought about them it's not a clear cut story, but what I love about it is there's a realness to that. Like there's some real humanity in there because a lot of the stories we get during black history month tend to be, um, pun intended, black, and, black or white, right? You get very mono. uh uh, what's the word I'm trying to look for. You, you get, you get very linear characters. Monolithic? Yeah. Monolithic characters. Thank you, Luz. Uh, you get very monolithic characters and you don't, we don't get a sense of all of the things that go into it. So George Bonga is definitely one that if you want to put somebody in your list who's not the big five during Black History Month, check that one out. And his brother Stephen, who also spoke several languages and did a fair amount of work, but George gets the, you know, he gets all the notoriety uh, because that's where the history kind of centered on. I'd like to introduce one other person for us to think about. We're fast forwarding in years a little bit, uh, but Ethel Ray Nance, is a name uh, that is also tied to this Northland area. She uh, graduated from Duluth Central High School, but she is the one after the 1921 lynchings in Duluth um, when, two, when three circus workers were killed by a mob of thousands of people. So, yes, we had lynchings in, in Minnesota, in Duluth, 1921. Um, and a lot of the history will says that Ethel Ray Nance met W.E.B. Du Bois as a result of that. But Ethel Ray Nance was responsible for W.E.B. Du Bois getting on the train and coming to Duluth, um, uh, to eventually leading to the establishment of the Duluth chapter of the NAACP. Ethel Ray Nance uh, broke many different uh, barriers, including um, the as a, she brought the secretarial color barrier in the Minnesota State Legislature, and she also worked as a stenographer for the Minnesota State Relief Commission, after the 1918 fires in in that burned down a whole lot of swath swath of area in Duluth, and so she's not a name that we hear very often, but she was absolutely essential for, for bringing. W. B. DuBois to help highlight that lynching in Duluth, so I want to throw that name on there, especially for Minnesota, uh, to get get this you know shout out to the sisters doing big things.
2: I'll throw out a name. Uh, she's that local. Her name, she went by Biddy Mason, B-I-D-D-Y. Her birth name was Bridget, um, but she went by Biddy Mason. She was born in Georgia and was enslaved at the time. Um, She was, you know, trained as a midwife, as a nurse. And she ended up having to walk over 1,700 miles across the Great Plains herding cattle tending the people's health, you know, as a nurse, uh, crossed into California. And at that point, California was free, but her enslaved master or slave master um, would not free her. So she actually took him to court and won her freedom in 1856. Now, what's amazing about her, A, who who can walk 1,700 miles, right, and and still have the the ability to do much after that i mean that and of course everyone else is in a stage court uh stage coach at that point so she challenges and and wins and gains her freedom and then in just 10 years 10 years later in 1866 she becomes one of the largest landowners in the city of los angeles barring any race right one of the largest landowners in the city of los angeles during the middle of the 19th century and she becomes the first black woman to own property uh there um and then because of redlining later on folks other black folks would be also become free uh couldn't access land so she would be the one that was buying land and then selling it over to other folks who had gained their freedom. She founded the first African Methodist Episcopal church in Los Angeles. So the first AMA. I was waiting for you
3: to say it, Luz. Yeah. I was waiting for you to say it.
2: Yeah, she did. Um, she AME sure AME's did. represent AME representing. And uh, she ended up dying as a millionaire. So just think about that. In that time, what she, I mean, she had a brilliant mind for business, right? She ended up becoming a real estate entrepreneur. She ended up being a uh, philanthropist. She set up uh, schools for Black children all around the area. Now, her glory is not well known across the country. There is a park named after her in LA, and there's a movement afoot, recent movement, I should say to glorify her brilliance, uh, so that more people know about her. There are some children's books that I've written about her, but not enough of us know. And I certainly didn't know until my daughter sent it to me, uh, sent me a post on Instagram and said, Hey mom, uh, I know you're going to like this. So I, I'm fascinated by her. I'm going to end up, I just got it there too, or So I, I'm going to end up uh, reading some books on her life. She's, she's a fascinating woman who changed history in so many ways and really led by her leadership. So I, um, I'm i proud as heck that she, that she did all this stuff, you know, and I'm just humbled by the fact that, you know, I didn't know about her until now.
3: see, that's the beauty of going beyond the big five. And what I love yeah. about this story is, you know, oftentimes in Black History Month, when we start piecing apart history, it's only ever subjugation, oppression, mm-hmm. or like people who, like, miraculously or circumstantially, you know, circumvented something, right? You don't hear the stories about the folks who, like, were on the ground putting in work and doing amazing, dope stuff. And of course, AME Church. You got to shout out the AME Church. I know. You know the first it's real. autonomous black denomination in the United States, 1857. Um, and that 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 history in there. And so because that's the first church, it's referred to as the mother church. So if you remember Mother Emmanuel, oh, the sure? first church in the state is referred to as the mother church. So here so in get... Minnesota, the first AME church is St. James AME Church in Minneapolis, which is referred to as affectionately as Mother St. James. Mm. But what Biddy Mason does is part um, and, and kind of that ethos is part and parcel to what many folks did. We have this idea. That once we got free from slavery, we were we were automatically just trying to figure out how to survive in life. No, 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 no. We had a whole lot of folks who who were thriving, getting land, um, setting things up. I mean, this is also very similar to the story of how Tulsa becomes what it is. Mm -hmm. People showed up, went to the area, began to buy, began Mm -hmm. to do things. And I just I love hearing stories about how we like did regular everyday stuff and were brilliant.
2: That's right. That's not right. in
3: spite of just That's right. just because we brilliant.
2: And that brilliant was that brilliance was there from the start, but but folks were being of course oppressed and suppressed, you know, and it wasn't until those um restrictions and chains were lifted, for, you know, for all intents and purposes, that people would would walk into the brilliance. But that brilliance was always there, right? I mean you you It's not something that you can just automatically turn on. I mean, these are folks who've had that level of entrepreneurship in them. Uh, And then the collectivity of it, you know, opening doors for others, right? And making sure that others can walk in and follow in her footsteps in so many ways is so powerful.
3: If we go, if we're going to be throwing around some of those things, right? I know Harriet Tubman is the big five. Mm -hmm. Everybody's heard about Harriet Tubman, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Um you know, and and we can we can I'm not saying we can't explore the big 5 and like look at their stories. I think Harriet, if we actually look at her story with actual details, not the myths that come over time, you realize that yes she went down south 19 times, but she didn't save, you know, the the hundreds of people that 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 is rumored to do, but she is responsible for hundreds and thousands of people, hundreds to a thousand people. Uh, getting free because of the work that she did to bring others along. She did 19 times, probably responsible historically for about, you know, 50 to 75 people, but she established lines. She established processes that allowed for that to happen. She proliferated herself in other ways. And I think there's a way to look at the big five with below the line history lens, but I want to throw somebody else onto the mix that should be also part of our Minnesota history. We got to go sports. Uh, and we gotta go Tony Stone. Tony Stone's gotta be on our list. I know I didn't talk about this <laughs> earlier, um, but but she was born in West Virginia. Um, she makes she, She's a graduate of Tuskegee Institute and she makes her way to the Rondo neighborhood here in St. Paul. And she plays various sports, but she is an American female professional baseball player.
2: Wow. Black woman.
3: Wow. American female professional baseball player who played in a predominantly male leagues. In in 1953, she became the first woman to play as a regular on an American major level professional baseball team when she joined the Indianapolis Clowns.
2: <laughs> so she was breaking In the previously all-male
3: Negro leagues.
2: Yeah, she's breaking gender barriers of any and all sorts as re, as well as race barriers. I mean, she's, Wow, she's putting it down big time.
3: Got and got a field name after her. If you go to Dunning Rec Center.
2: Is that in St. Paul?
3: Yep, that's in St. Paul. I got to rep the STP, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but we t- if we talk athletes, we have so many great athletes, uh, black athletes that have come out of Minnesota way, from way far back, like you said, right? Um, even before um, the Negro, the Negro League, we had – black baseball players. No, okay, so here's the other thing when we talk black history. People, and I said this on our last show, people say, oh, black history, they think about what, you know, the civil rights movement, you get the top five, and that's it. Like, we don't, we, in school, we don't learn about anybody after that. But there's a lot of great things that have happened in Minnesota history that didn't happen in the 1960s and 70s. And in one of those is entertainment, I mean, you know, we have to acknowledge the stuff that came out of here. Prince and I mean Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis.
3: Jimmy Jam and Terry right? Lewis. Um, yeah. The Minnesota sound.
0: You got to Patrice
3: Russian. Yeah. I mean, come on. We got <laughs> you got to give credit. We got folks to look at locally. I got a story for you. This one gonna blow your mind. You ready? Mm-hmm. I'm really gonna mess with white folks. <laughs> chill on this one. So we know the the origins of hockey. Okay, the origins of hockey must include talking about the little known black hockey leagues from Nova Scotia that were organized in 1895 and lasted until 1930. So so this one is 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 little known and some of them had ties to the to the African Methodist Episcopal Church as well but um that black hockey leagues existed before the national hockey league so for all the folks who thought black folks don't play hockey <laughs> we part of the organi- organizing of what would be, eventually become the NHL i just had to throw that on there just because it's a wild story that i i was floored when i when i when i first came upon it So if you want to add that to your search, search (laughs) up the black origins of the national hockey league and check out what these brothers did on ponds. And, and there's actual pictures, right? So, so you can go and see a picture of these folks now it's Canada, right? But, but I I just, I want to throw out there that we, we operated in many aspects of, of life in the United States that folks don't often think about African Americans when you think about that. Um, you know and so i and and it's not just people right i know we're we're calling out people because of our context of the big five, but we also have have situations of of coping that were ingenious we gotta talk about the green book mm. how many of you learned about the green book in k twelve and not that sorry movie that actually wasn't about the green book at all <laughs> it ended up being about it was it ended up being a white savior movie but yeah yeah <laughs>
2: Yeah, that would not be the historical mm. accurate uh, per, um, portrayal of what the Green Book is. I didn't learn about the Green Book until I was grown. Um, yeah. And and the importance of it and the necessity and the role that it played in keeping folks safe. But go ahead and unpack it some more. Um, Anthony, you go ahead. Well,
3: it's affectionate. It's known as the Green Book, but it was the the negro motorist guidebook and so i remember um i remember stories of my um of my family like getting on calls even when i was younger when they would make trips down south because driving was cheaper at that point than flying we couldn't couldn't afford to fly and i remember family members calling south and like talking with family members and like making notes um about where to pack food and things like that because they would go through areas that were not friendly to black folks, and and that's that's now right when the Negro Motorist Guidebook, known as the Green Book, uh, was sold at so gas stations across the South. It was real matters of safety: what towns to drive through, when to pack your food, when to pack gas, because you're not going to have a place to stop that would either serve you, let alone mess with you if you stopped. And so it was a way of navigating the South safety, safely. And it's and it's interesting um part of the early editions of this green book were actually uh uh, victor green right um were published in part funded by the, the department of state department of travel so it's actually an example of um the the u.s government actually being a part of and acknowledging right um the one some of the ones the most famous ones that you'll see pictures of were published from 1936 through 1966 um but many black folks who took to driving had to avoid segregated areas uh, unsafe areas um and it was an african american new york city postal worker victor hugo green who who kind of galvanized and, and put into a book what people were doing unofficially talking to each other passing notes um so at one point i had a friend of mine who who actually had like little slips of paper of people who who would get onto the phone call or, or somehow connect to Family Down South and write and take notes in the Green Book, right? Because they didn't have a copy of their own. And this is just a, one of the many genius ways in which we figured out how to navigate this landscape. I mean, folks, you know, it makes you ask the question, how How did we cope with segregation across the South? Well, we did in some genius and fascinating ways. So the Green Book definitely has to be on a list of things to go back and fetch uh, in during Black History Month.
2: Well, and, and, you know, often enough people will say, oh, Black History Month, that was a long time ago. Biddy Mason was hundreds of years ago. You know, this example that you just shared with us and lifted off uh, the Green Book was during your lifetime. I mean, this is, this is not a long time ago, right? I mean, you remember it is a matter of literally life and death uh, for many families to be able to navigate Uh, and physically be in the spaces, sundown towns and things of that sort, where folks' lives were at jeopardy if they didn't have this information literally in their hands. I mean, this is before, um, you know, certainly internet and and cell phones and all that stuff. Folks had to be really resourceful and being able to access this information and and
1: pass it around. While it was... I'm sure, originally started for uh, the deep south Jim Crow states to, to navigate safely. But I also believe that it eventually also included uh, towns and cities uh, uh, in the north, because let, let's right not fool ourselves, just because it wasn't a Jim Crow state <laughs> didn't mean it wasn't safe to be up here all the time and being black. So I know they had to have included safe places to be able to stay, even up here in the North, in in, in uh, Chicago and, in uh, you know, in different major cities up here in North. There still were areas where you, as a Black person, could not go eat, could not stay, yada, da, da, da. And, and um, so I'm sure, the, you know, because I don't remember hearing about this in high school. But I do remember hearing talk about it in the community. Right? It wasn't called the Green Book, yeah. but I do remember talk about that. I had the
3: same experience. I didn't know I, I had the same experience. Like I didn't have the term Green Book to call it when I when I would hear how folks in my family would would plan trips. I had no clue of its connection to the Green Book as a, as a term, but definitely saw the notes and saw the
1: plan so You know, when when we talk about things like that, the the first thing that hits me is that because we were so low-income and didn't even have enough money to buy a car, it still kind of blows me away that there were plenty of other Black folk who did have cars and could travel. So I, I sometimes still struggle with that. You know, so the fact that there were many many, many folks who could afford to travel in a vehicle that they owned um, still kind of blows me away, especially because we couldn't afford one. So sometimes I still have to get over that. But the fact that many black folk had automobiles and could travel speaks to the fact that uh, it breaks that myth, it breaks that mindset, it breaks many of the stories that we we hear about how after we were freed from slavery that we then became these uh lazy, domicile, good-for-nothing kind of folks. And, you know, the stories that we hear in our community are totally different. I mean, the things we're talking about, are totally different from that. That's you know, but that's that that myth, the myth that was perpetrated um, against us in order to create those Jim Crow laws.
3: You know, there are so many things jump on there. That connection between you and what Lewis had brought up in the sundown towns, right? Let's we're gonna talk about some of the history to talk about. Let's talk about the racially restrictive covenants in many of our, our neighborhoods in, of course, Ramsey and Hennepin County, but also in suburban neighborhoods. I mean, Edina made the James Lowen's book, Sundown Towns. This is this is the the author, the historian who wrote the book Lies My Teacher Told Me, Lies Across America, which looks at the National Park Service, right? This is where you get that astonishing figure that of some of the federally recognized monuments to the Civil War, a vast majority of our monuments to the, to the Confederacy across the country. And so and a lot of them were built way after. We're not talking about something built right after the turn of the Civil War. We're talking about things that were built in response to civil rights movement and action. But but racially restrictive covenants, you know, as you talk about that, right, The in connection to the Green Book, there were absolutely neighborhoods. I remember growing up that my grandmother got into an argument with my uncles because they were going to drive to St. Cloud. And... She was concerned, not because there are like roving groups of, of racists like waiting on the border, although you know, to my uncle's experience coming back, that might not have been so far from the truth, but but because you are more likely to be harassed and messed with, especially after dark. Um, and, and I'll I'll and, and 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 then the population, even though it it um it changes over time. All the cities around it diversify at much faster rates than the city itself. And so the question becomes raised, what are the mechanisms that aren't necessarily on paper anymore, but by treatment of certain folks, experiences of certain folks that keep a town surrounded by uh, cities that are diversifying way faster than it is? What is keeping its, its, demo, its demographics the same? And James Lowen would put forward this this notion. Say it again. HOA fees. Oh, a, well, I mean that's a piece, yes. <laughs> right? Well, we got folks who can afford that. I mean, come on. I did. Like, I've I've heard like,
0: people who um, buy in these um, people of color who buy in these planned neighborhoods, these gated neighborhoods or whatever, right? That pop up, you know, but outside Lake Elmo, um, you know, Shoreview, that kind of stuff, um, Dinah, Richfield, these planned communities. Um, and whenever I mentioned like wow you know that, that HOA fee is so high it's almost the amount of your mortgage and one person actually said to me like then you know at least you know that your neighbors are on the same level as you and that's what I thought oh my god uh, it's it's like a new line of, of, of it's, new, it's a new kind right of of keeping folks out and that's why they don't want sidewalks they don't want sidewalks because they don't want people not from there walking around their homes
3: well i mean okay okay i'm gonna I'm throw us into an even deeper barrel because we already acknowledge this native land let's make sure that's clear mm. we're all talking about native land so we're talking about very late arrivals to the area i just want to point that out so because don i i could i could see i could see your wheels turning right so i get that we're talking about native land but edina is actually found it right though some of the first residents and settlers in that area were black folks the Yancey family the Yancey berry farm proliferates into the area and, and then over time the 17, 17 of the early residents of Edina become pushed out for some of the rules um, and just some of the treatment that are that that happened in there and and it's not easy history like I'm not saying that this is what everybody in Edina thinks now right so don't go down that rabbit mm-hmm. hole because that ain't got nothing to do with real facts and history. Mm-hmm. Like let's let let's be let's be grown ups and have some real grown up conversation. But like, I, I think it's important to note that there's history woven in between all these different areas. That what does it make of 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 what does it make of a city? Now, I mean, if we want to talk about another city, let's talk about Hastings. Brown Chapel A.M.E. Church was a black church in Hastings that burned down under mysterious circumstances, um, egged on by a local pastor, a local white pastor, who was the grand wizard of the KKK. So like there was a black church and black community in Hastings, Minnesota that gets run out because of the violence. It almost happened in Duluth, but somehow Duluth maintains its black population. Um, it's two to 3% now, but it after the lynchings, and part of that is because of the organizing of the community that's there, but like, We've got this history if we want to talk about St. Cloud, St. Cloud, much of the land that was gotten and procured in St. Cloud, according to um, the book Slavery's Reach by by, um, Professor Lehman out of St. Cloud University, like a lot of that land, a lot of the infrastructure is built to serve southern planters who are coming up with their slaves and to service their economy. And those folks made more money by leasing their slaves out. So so we like to, to be like, Minnesota doesn't have a whole lot of connection to slavery. A lot of Minnesota is built on, on supporting the vacationing slave owners coming to the area. And we don't like to talk about... So, so I, I just love that we peeling back some layers here. Well, this is, not, I think, exactly what Black History Month is supposed to do.
2: Well, yes. And the fact that the redlining covenants on quite a bit of Minnesota property titles still exist you know and and the university of minnesota has done an incredible job going through property records and trying to then wipe that clean this is the 21st century i mean who's going to think and believe or anticipate that in the 2020s you know something that they're so redlining on someone's property title uh with regard to race i mean which is It's it's flabbergasting, and it's unreal, but it's not.
3: Yeah, it's called Mapping Prejudice. It's the Mapping Prejudice Project at the University of Minnesota. Excellent, excellent, amazing work.
2: Yeah. So
3: I got this question for you, then. Like, I'm sorry, y'all got me in my history nerd zone. So, like, y'all just go and get it how you get it. Uh,
2: oh, it's not but... a surprise. It's not like you've never <laughs> been in that zone before. It's a new zone for us.
3: <laughs> That's fair.
1: That's fair.
3: Well, I mean, uh, I've I've been learning and growing in my consciousness and my awareness of deaf cultural uh, communities in the state of Minnesota, right? And and it's one of the areas that I, I am having to learn, right? This is This is not a cultural center for me. And so I'm having to learn as we go. But I got to sit sit with a group of, of black deaf educators and they schooled me on the history of Brown versus Board. So, so come to find out that uh, Louise Burrell Miller sues the D.C. school system for segregation in 1951 because of the segregation of her uh, deaf children from the local deaf school. Um, and or the being forced to, 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 um, to segregate. Um, and so there's a whole lot of history of, of black deaf activism and community, uh, in there, but I didn't know that that was a precursor, right? That, that Brown versus the board's case would draw from the experiences of this case for eventually the Brown versus board of education. That one blew my entire mind.
2: Well, there's another case that, and we should talk about this, Fast forward in September for Hispanic Heritage Month, I've done a presentation on this, uh, Mendez versus Westminster, which is also a precursor to Board B Brown, and the attorneys yes. uh, in Board B. Brown, uh Brown actually relied on much of the arguments made in the Mendez case for that. It's a Latino, um, a Mexican family actually out in California, but I, I digress. I don't want to take us there. Okay, so you're throwing out questions. But you can,
3: because if we're going <laughs> to talk about Chicano identity, we got to talk about blackness still, too. But that's, that's right. just me. I'm going to let right. that go. No, All right. no,
2: it is. It is. It's real. <laughs> so you put a question out there. I'll, I'll put a question out there. And this is this is a, a shorter one. Who first taught the principle that black is beautiful?
3: Well, oh, no. OK, see, this feels like Negro History Week. This is like Carter G. Woodson's home <laughs> right here. I love it.
2: Anybody, black is
3: beautiful. I would
0: say I never really thought about it, right? It wasn't something I thought about. I would see black women, and I would think they were beautiful. But the concept of of black beauty, in the sense that I think we're talking about, I it you know it wasn't on my radar. Um, I didn't have any sort of understanding of good here, bad here, right? That whole conversation. Um, it just wasn't. You know, as as a young person. So I I think what, what what when I really started learning about black beauty, um, in the sense that we're talking about, was in high school when I met Robin Hickman. Mm. And um she introduced me to her Black Barbie collection and talked to me about, you know, her initiative of making sure that black women knew that that they were beautiful as they were in their natural stance. And I, I thought, wow, this is something I never would have thought of. But I thought I, it was it was very inspirational. And she's, she continues to be an extremely inspirational person. Um, but it was really her who, like, you know, I'm trying to understand my two cultures I'm living in, and this conflict, you know, when you're going through high school and trying to discover yourself. And just, like, to really open yourself up to, like, what are the experiences of those folks around me? And the folks that I love, and what are some of the things they're going through? Um, So I would say Robin Hickman in high school.
2: Outside of K twelve
3: for you, I'm gonna throw in.
2: So this is historical. So, so that's so. where Go you ahead. encountered it. Okay, that's where you encountered it. I, All right,
3: I'm gonna throw out Stephen Biko and the members of the Negritude movement in the 30s.
2: Okay, Don, you got a guess?
3: That's my guess.
2: All right.
1: Wow. Um. You know, I don't know who's attributed, you know, um, you know, the first thing that popped to my mind was James Brown, Brother James Brown, right? Part, say I mean, loud. say loud. I'm black and I'm proud. I mean, that's the first name that came to mind. So for me, that's the first time I heard it. But I'm sure he's probably not the first person who who came up with that phrase. So who is it? I mean, I looked it up, so I didn't want to, you know. But
2: Yeah. It is Malcolm X. Malcolm X came up what? with, yeah, black is beautiful. He was the one who, first one who taught the principle that black is beautiful. And, and it was his way of really looking at reframing how blackness was being portrayed by mainstream and dominant communities, right? Um, and of course, you know, believed in self-reliance uh, being the means of success. So looking at redefining how black folks looked at themselves, but also from a place of empowerment, the broader community as well. So he was the one who really came out and taught that principle. And, you know, if you think about it, when I first thought about that question, I thought about, you know, uh, the Black Panthers, because I, I thought about black empowerment. I mean, for me, black is beautiful goes beyond the physical traits. It also went to empowerment uh and so that's what i was thinking when i first uh was pondering the question uh but it ended up being um i've got this you talk about nerds uh anthony i have this brain quest uh black history it's these cards it's 850 questions uh challenging you know your knowledge of African american heritage so uh there you go.
3: And I will offer.
2: I'm right along the,
3: with with Malcolm X's uh, coining of that phrase. King would also talk about black is beautiful in some of the speeches there. But I still got to. I got to lift up the Negritude movement of the 1930s, uh, which 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 is, comes out of West Africa, comes out of a French uh, origin. But politicians, artists would gather and explore. It was kind of like an, an it, it, after Harlem Renaissance. But you know, even Langston Hughes would write uh, about the beauty. Uh, uh, the, the 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 beauty of blackness in particular, in reference to black women, in some of that poetry. So you know, I think there's an organic nature to this, but what you said a very specific point: mm-hmm. the principles surrounding black yeah. beauty. That that puts it into a particular category. So, the, but the, I love this. I love this. This is exactly what we're supposed to be doing in Black History Month. <laughs> this is this is it. I love it. I love it. All right. I got one more to throw at you. Okay. I got one more to throw at you. Just let me get one more in. All right. So this one has to be lifted up, lifted up because it's connected to so much of the folklore that we have around slavery, or excuse me, in particularly the Underground Railroad. So many of us have read the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. And in the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, there's a harrowing story of a woman who, when one year when the Ohio River froze over, and you can actually go back and look, at this the, the governor's son was like the first one out on the ice there was a year that the ohio river froze over and it does every now and then but not frequently and so in this story this woman makes it on her way up north through the underground railroad and they try to convince her not to go because it had since heated up kind of like we have this heat spell right now in minnesota right <laughs> don't be on mm-hmm. the ice do not be on the ice right now some people are still mm-hmm. up on the ice so she makes it across she jumps from ice where to ice flow And in the story in in Uncle Tom's Cabin, she makes it all the way across, but then gets found by this slave catcher named Albert who had been watching the whole thing. And he's so moved by her experience that he picks her up, takes her three quarters to a mile uphill to John Rankin's house, who's a well-known abolitionist, and then she eventually makes her way towards Canada for freedom, and Albert never is a slave catcher again. Now, Harriet Beecher Stowe... Embellishes a whole lot in this movie because in this in this book because she's trying to convince people of the horrors of slavery to try to You know propel the the cause for the war uh, in the north. So I got somebody for you that dashes that so I was in with the civil rights research experience um, Many years ago and these kids we go to John Rankin's house We're up on the top of the mountain John Rankin's descendant sees us singing and walking up the staircase to this house after hours, right, and right. was like, "Hey, what y'all doing?" Um, and we're like, "What do you mean?" They're like, we think he's trying to check us because we a bunch of black folks on, you know, on where we're not supposed to be, so we get suspicious. And he's like, "No, no, 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 no. I was here to give one of my family's Bibles to the His- history center, and I was just touched wow. by the fact that y'all were coming up to, you know, it seemed wow. like y'all were like making a pilgrimage of sorts. So we tell him the places where we've been, all this history, and he mic drops us and tells us, "Hey, you know that story?" Had to be changed, so the names of the woman in the story are different, and it was not some slave catcher named Albert. It was a well-known aboli- uh, or, or, or a conductor of the Underground, well-known to the other, you know, abolitionists, named John Parker, a black freedman who lived right on the river, and had many steel patents. Like this is how dope this cat is. He's living openly in a well-known Underground Railroad travel route. But somehow maintains to keep his freedom, stay unmolested by the slave catchers in the in the fugitive because the fugitive slave act was in would allow people to come up and try to reclaim their quote unquote property. So the dude was badass. Period. Like you had to have something going there. In, in, in addition to the fact that John Rankin's sons, under the Second Amendment, formed a militia to protect the folks in the Underground Railroad in that area. We we don't like to talk about that when we talk about Second Amendment. So so John Parker is. This dope is responsible for like upwards of a thousand people making it across the area through Ripley, Ohio, and into Freedom is actually the person who carries this woman up to John Rankin's house. Mm. Blew our minds, and we get this firsthand from one of John Rankin's descendants who happened to be in there in the History Society. Like, you want to that's talk beautiful. about some below the line yeah, stuff? Yeah. Messing with people's that's classic beautiful.
2: mythology. Wow. Wow, good stuff.
0: <laughs> well, I don't even know how to end the show. I mean, it's just like we could keep going. We should have Luz just ask us all those questions that she's got in that those. Oh, I've I've got eight hundred. <laughs>
2: I've got eight hundred forty nine left.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Is that the tall, little, skinny card yeah, thing that she yep. like move to the side?
2: that's right they're like uh cards and this is all I mean this is old you know we bought these for the girls our daughters when they were young and we sit at the kitchen table or in the living room and we just would quiz each other and uh we learned a lot as a family that's cool
0: as I said in the last show I hope y'all are googling (laughs) while we talk because I know that I am when new names are mentioned and uh, I'm sitting here googling so that I'm educating myself as we go. And so I hope all of our listeners are as well. Thanks for joining us. I'm Hui Lee, owner of the Other Media Group, VP of programming at Ampers, and Counter Stories producer.
1: And I'm Don Eubanks, member of the Malax Band Indians and associate at Dendros Group.
2: Luz Maria Frias, uh happily enjoying life to its fullest.
3: And I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and partner at the Dendros Group in Black is Indeed beautiful. Yes, yes. it is.
0: Yes. <laughs> this has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories Crew and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.